Earth is a small town with many neighborhoods in a very big universe. Do you agree? This is an excerpt from our guest today. Welcome to the Roaming the Earth podcast. I am your host, Drea Castro, and today I am here with Anastasia Gorolova. Anastasia is a producer and journalist for Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty. She is also a creative producer working in an international media company in Prague. She has worked with Reuters and the BBC. She has covered events such as the Pussy Riot Trials, the World Cup, the Olympic Games, and NATO summits, to name a few. She has a passion for music, and many of her travels has been inspired by covering music events throughout the world. Thank you for joining me and joining all of us, Anastasia. Hello. Thanks for having me. Of course. So Anastasia has been a friend of mine for a really, really long time now. It's been, I don't know, like six years. Yeah, I think it's six. Yeah. That's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) And she came here because she was my Airbnb guest. I used to have an Airbnb in my apartment and she came in and like we saw each other and we were like, I'm in love with this person. Like, I love this human being. And we just clicked. And we traveled around Los Angeles, going from music venue to music venue, stayed up in the middle of the night, checking out (laughs) musical events. It was an adventure for sure. Uh, Yes, (laughs) definitely. So I'm glad that you're here. (laughs) You're the one who took me to the ocean for the first time ever in my life. So yes, I have pictures of that. I have a picture of that. I'm going to put that up. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me about this excerpt that I just read. You took that in Alabama Hills, right? Which is one of my favorite campsites in California. Tell me about yeah. your experience there. Yeah. So that uh, was the last photo before the world went crazy with the coronavirus and stuff. Um, it was taken mid-March. Europe was already on lockdown. Um, Asia too. And the US was kind of just about getting there I'm really happy that we discovered that place because it was deserted it was empty there was nobody there but it was so beautiful and so gorgeous such a wonderful out of this universe like out of this planet kind of landscape while we were traveling it was still still fine you know people talked about coronavirus but it wasn't really uh, an issue still um but a few days later (laughs) the travel was literally cut off um so yeah and you got back just in time uh, I definitely had a lot of anxiety towards the end of the trip because uh, because regulations were changing like every like few hours. And so Trump announces that he's going to cancel all the flights from Europe. And we're like, oh, OK, how do we go back if nothing is coming to pick us up? Yeah. <laughs> and then and then the Europe was like, OK, so if you're not like a resident or something that you can't come back. And I'm like, well, does my residency status count or does it not? Can I go back to like? The place that I call home, or can I not? Like, what do I do? So it's a bit, it was a bit um, tricky, but eventually, it, w- it was all really smooth. No flight cancellations. It was really a really smooth journey, and we got back home, and then kind of take a deep, took a deep breath out, and haven't really traveled too much this year for obvious reasons. But I'm really glad that that trip happened. So yeah, isn't uh, that and the crazy? Uh, yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah. You were just like, I remembered messaging you and asking you. Um, how are you going to get home? Because <laughs> things are about to, like, the shit is hitting the fan right now. Yeah. And I was worried that you'd be stuck here and I'd be like, you could stay with me and quarantine with me. Like, you know? <laughs> totally. 
Well, in addition to that, honestly, there was another funny uh, thing happening in that during that trip as well. Um, I really wanted to go to South Lake Tahoe. I really wanted to see it. I've read a lot about it. I've seen people posting so many great pictures. And it's just like, it's a really cool place that I wanted to explore. Yeah. And so uh, we kind of like built our journey around this whole lake. So we would end up there for a couple of days to like chill, relax, explore. And as we kind of drive in to the like final part and kind of about to park at our hotel, I get a Google alert that says that snowstorm is coming. And I'm like, March, snowstorm, what? California, what? <laughs> and then, and not only it's just like a, some tiny minor snowstorm, it's like a two day affair, literally covering all of our trip, uh, literally. <laughs> Literally and figuratively covering all of our trip, and we figured out that it might be tr- it might be tricky to get out of there because there's only like two roads leading up out of the area, and they get blocked off by the snow, and it would be snowing nonstop. So that kind of added it added on top of all the other anxiety that we had, and we we're just like, oh, what are we gonna do? We started exploring like snow chains. What are snow chains? We never use snow chains. People don't use it in Europe. You just get the winter tires, snow chains. Why? So we had to like figure that out. Um, yeah. So that was. Did you get a pair thing. of snow chains? We got a pair of snow chains. <laughs> it was an extremely freaking slow driving with snow chains, um, but whatever. At least it felt safe. Yeah, I've never used snow chains. I don't know if you just do two of them. Do you do all four wheels? Like, no idea. Yeah, they do the two front wheels uh, basically. To like, yeah, to help you like get get that stability. Um, but in Europe or like I don't know the places like Russia, places that I lived in, you just have the winter tires. That's what I had in Jersey. Winter tires. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Did you actually get to go to Tahoe? Yeah, yeah, we did. We arrived and then we spent a day there, and we had a nice jacuzzi. And as we were sitting in the jacuzzi, we were just like, so what should we do? Shall we? <laughs> leave tomorrow morning or shall we stay until monday morning and then try to make it like to san francisco last minute to, for a flight and we were just like i can't deal with any more anxiety right now having to think about the coronavirus the flight cancellations the possible like rescheduling and stuff and just being stuck here because of the snowstorm we're like let's just enjoy our night here tonight and the view as well and tomorrow morning let's just leave and it was honestly it was a good choice because i was constantly checking as we were driving, there was a blanket of snow falling. And I was like, this is getting bad. Oh and so the, the, the highway that we took was fine. The other highway was closed for like eight hours while they were like cleaning it out or whatever. So we definitely didn't want to get stuck there. And yeah, I think it was a good, good decision in retrospect. So yeah. Sometimes, you know, just chilling and just being like, it's going to be fine. And then it is, <laughs> you know, luckily most of the time. So... I usually am one of the people who is like, it's going to be okay, don't worry about it. But for some reason, this trip, there was just so many things piling up one and the other when I was like... I mean, the world was going through an apocalypse, you know, at the same time. (laughs) So, I mean, that makes sense. Right? The apocalypse is not over yet. So We're pretty much in an apocalypse, so... (laughs) But now it's like... It feels like it's it's normalizing where it's like, yeah, everyone wears a mask. We're almost like acclimating and just it's normal, even though it's like not... (laughs) It's not normal. It's the new normal, whatever you call it's it. It's the new normal. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's been crazy. But uh, I'm glad you made it home, although I was kind of disappointed. I was hoping, you know, maybe Anastasia could stay with us for a few months. Like, it'll be great. Like, <laughs> I would have loved that, too. But at the same time, I'm not sure, to be honest, when I look at what's happening in the U.S., what has been happening in the U.S. Oh, the I think I'm, we're quite fine. Here. I know. It's crazy. <laughs> it's absolutely insane. 
So why are you passionate about travel? Why are you passionate about travel? What does travel mean to you? I just want to quote that funny uh, YouTube video that I recently saw, but travel is life. <laughs> travel is life um, in many ways, because to me, it's a great way to sort of escape from reality. You can jump into a completely different setting within sometimes a few hours of like a quick trip somewhere and just something that helps you to disconnect from that like daily routine which is really important for me but at the same time it's just a great way to like um, explore get inspired to like learn something new to like see how other people to get like a different perception of the world I think so whenever I go there's always a story there and it's always fascinating to learn it it's always fascinating to discover it it's always fascinating to apply it to yourself sometimes and like see how you fit within this whole thing and like I think it helps me find my place in the world. I agree with you. There's something about travel that grounds you, the experience of it, at least for me, and I think it's similar for you where it's like you learn so much about yourself and obviously about whatever culture or place that it is, if it's the people, if it's the the landscape. It's just, it's such a special, special thing. <laughs> yeah, especially especially the nature travels for me are probably like the, the most exciting ones. I mean, I love the city travel too. And I've done a lot of that sort of when I was a teeny bit younger. But these days I really like going in the nature and like being away from everything. And actually one of the coolest things about um, traveling like that back road of California in March was that- It's the 395. It's one of my yeah, favorite Yeah, yeah um thank you um it's because we went to the death valley and it was pretty empty i mean i kind of imagined that to be like a super touristy spot where everybody goes to because it's kind of it's close to la it's not too difficult to drive as a day trip or something but uh but it was empty deserted and then the next day uh we drove a bit further up the road and we drove up a mountain pretty high up and it was also deserted. We only saw like one other car parked there. And that was it. The whole, the whole space, that whole wilderness was for ourselves. So you could like breathe this absolute freshest, cleanest air. And you see this gorgeous landscape. It's breathtaking. And you can just stand there and it can take as much time as you need to just like breathe and connect to your surroundings, you know, and disconnect from everything else, from any anxiety and worries and um, frustrations and disappointments of life that you have, which I think is so, so, so important. And I really, I really believe that um, traveling like in the nature is just one of the best ways to get your mental state, <laughs> sort yourself out a little bit when you need it. We come from the earth. So mm -hmm. I feel like as we age we appreciate nature more because we're going to return to the earth it's kind of morbid mm -hmm. but i mean i feel like we're mm -hmm, more con like, idea, yeah it's like we're connected to this earth and maybe when we're younger we're really excited about the city and the hustle and bustle but then as we get older uh and obviously there are exceptions but as we get older i feel in my journey i feel so connected to the earth i feel so grounded and i feel uh I don't know there's just this like reset that happens when you're in nature and that's why I, I first of all I love the 395 all the way up is just so gorgeous because you have as you're coming from LA on the right side it's Death Valley it's the it's the desert it's the vast desert um, and then to the left is the the Sierras 
the Sierra mountain range, which is like incredible. And I do a lot of camping, like backcountry camping out there. And obviously you're in Alabama Hills right behind you is the Sierras and Mount Whitney, which is the highest mountain in the lower 48. So it's like, it's this really special, magical place, very secluded um, for the most part, you know, and just vast and it's just makes you feel small. So I totally hear you. We were the 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 mountain that we climbed. I think if not if I'm not mistaken, it's called Inyo Mountains or like Inyo. In the Inyo Forest. Yep. Yeah. So that's that's the area that we drove to because they have the pine bristle pine cone forest yes. there, like ancient bristle pine cone yep. forest there. So we went all the way there, and that if you stand like on top there, you get this absolutely beautiful lookout. Yeah, on the Sierra Mountains, and it's just. It's crazy, this whole massive, massive range, and it's just like in front of you, and you you can kind of embrace it, you can grasp it, you know, looking at it from such distance, but also kind of being relatively, relatively cl close to it. It's not like you're looking miles apart from it. So yeah, no, definitely. I, I mean, I would absolutely recommend doing this trip. It sounds like you love to do nature traveling, but uh, and you've already touched on that a little bit, but what kind of traveling do you like to do? Do you like roughing it? Do you like backpacking? Do you like car camping? Do you like fancy hotels? Like, what do you, what do you, what do you prefer, Anastasia? <laughs> so that the next time we travel together, I'll like prepare myself. It's a, honestly, it's a tough question because I don't want to say like, oh, I would never stay in a luxury hotel. I mean, no, why not? <laughs> but it's certainly not the kind of trip that I'm most excited about. One of my favorite trips that we did um, with my now husband uh, was Iceland. She we... recently got married. Congratulations. <laughs> she eloped. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. But yes. <laughs> we went together to, uh, we went to Iceland a few years ago. Uh, it was kind of like a dream for both of us. And we checked out the flights and we're like oh actually it's pretty doable let's do it so we did um so that was a camper van road trip we just rented a camper van and we stayed in the camper van um even when we would stay in camps you know we would still sleep in a camper van um that was one of my favorite uh things to do ever it's just sort of it's kind of camping, but it's not like you don't have a tent to set up and that kind of stuff. So it, you, you kind of like don't have to do that dirty part <laughs> of camping. But at the same time, like it's it's the same sleeping under the stars in the middle of nowhere and just uh, being able to like be the master of your schedule and just sort of decide for yourself like, OK, we're going to explore this today and that today. And actually, I really love this area. So let's just like, stay here tonight because I want to see that. And, and one of the things that I did, uh, which... <laughs> it's a bit crazy but i really wanted to see the northern lights like really i was dying to see them like, i'm dying to see it i i mean why would why would you go to iceland if anyway so there's an app well like not an app but there's a like a meteorology website uh which has a for iceland specifically which has a um kind of map and forecast for the Northern Lights. I mean, it's not 100%, it's not gonna tell you like if you're gonna see it, but there's a few factors that if you like combine them together, you can figure out what your chances are for tonight, so to speak. I was addicted to that app. I refreshed it every like five, 10 minutes to check out. I was like, are there gonna be Northern Lights about us tonight? Are there gonna be, no, we have to drive further, maybe there, maybe there, <laughs> we might be able to see So we did, we saw them twice. Uh, <gasps> you saw them? Yes. 
and it's an oh. absolute gorgeous spectacle. And actually, one of the most unexpected things about Northern Lights for me was that I thought it was just like the sky turns green and it stays green, but there it's not. The Northern Lights are very agile. Like they're very, it's like it's almost like a lightning. It like moves through the sky pretty yeah. fast, and it's, like, it's a dance of things. So like I, it's oh. not what I imagined it to be, and it turned out to yeah. be so much more. It like uh, so, moves. It like moves. It's yeah. like this magical spectacle. It looks like it's someone's like, waving like a, a wand. Snake. It's like snaking around <gasps> through the sky. Oh it's gorgeous. So definitely kind of like a mix of both. Like I, I like I like the camping style, and I absolutely don't mind sleeping in a tent either. But I also like for some trips. I mean, I prefer like having a nice Airbnb or a nice hotel. So it really depends. It just really depends on where we're going. And what the purpose of that trip? I mean, having done Iceland, and of course we want to go back to Iceland and do like another round trip there. But like the next plan, whenever it tra travel becomes a bit more feasible and like kind of available again, and then Japan finally opens its borders, we definitely want to do a road trip in Japan, similar style, just like get a camper van and just like travel around. And Japan apparently has absolutely fantastic roadside stops. You know, just like wow, the gas station, the U.S. type of gas, gas station, but they're usually like rest spots and you'll have like a little restaurant in there or like it's kind of like a roadside restaurant. But as always in Japan, top quality food, even in that kind of restaurant <laughs> roadside wow. thing. Um, and then they'll have like little resting areas, which are usually pretty nice and comfortable. And um, you can like almost get like little ponds with like koi fish in it and that kind of stuff. And it's just like, you know, normal, pretty much like gas stop. So we definitely want to That's do this. That's not a normal gas stop. That is not a normal. I don't, I've never been to an American gas stop with like a koi pond, just normal. But, no, that is beautiful. We to Japan <laughs> and we want to see that. We got to go to Japan just for the koi pond gas stations. What? <laughs> I need to do that. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. The other place is New Zealand. So New Zealand, I think, is also another fantastic, fabulous place to just like get yourself a camper van and just kind of drive around and explore. And and New Zealand is great like that. And like Iceland, they actually allow you to pretty much park and uh, sleep pretty much anywhere you want. In New Zealand? So, yeah. I think it's the same in the U.S. still, because in Iceland, in Iceland, they only have designated spots. They've banned it a few years ago. You can't really park where you want. You can only park in designated like camp spots or whatever for the night. Um, I think because tourists went a bit wild there and they wanted to prevent this. They have that problem here, too. There's certain areas, you know, you can't just park your camper van because they know ooh, someone's sleeping in there. You know, it really depends on the area if they're strict about it. Um, there's areas like BLM land, which is the Bureau of Land Management. Um, that area you can pretty much disperse camping. You can park anywhere, but in the city, it kind of gets tricky, you know, like people are weird about it and there's definitely regulations on overnight things. And it, I guess it depends. It seems like you're leaning towards your favorite places in the world. Like I was going to ask that question, what's your favorite place in the world? And it seems like you're saying New Zealand and Japan. Is that correct? It seems like somewhere inside of me screaming like Japan, Japan, <laughs> <Yes>. New Zealand. <laughs> yes, definitely. Last year we did a combined trip, New Zealand, Japan. Uh, my friend was getting married in New Zealand and I kind of made him a promise a few years ago when he was moving back from London to New Zealand that when he gets married, I'll come visit him. So it was finally happening and yay. 
I mean, I love traveling for uh, weddings and marriage, just like I did for yours. Which you know, really she beautiful. came to my wedding. She was probably the farthest person that came to travel for my wedding. <laughs> it was it's amazing. So fun. And it was so special. I'm really happy that I was part of that experience. Yeah. And then, so yeah, so I made him a promise and yeah, um, he got married last year. So we had to go to New Zealand, which is really exciting because it's a pretty long journey. We looked for a way to break the trip because I didn't want to travel nonstop for like 24 or 36 hours. So we kind of looked around and we're like, what's the best way to like break this trip? And we're like, oh, Japan, it's right in the middle. So why don't we just do it? An excuse to go to Japan. <laughs> it was right in the middle. It's only about like 10, 11 hours to Japan from Europe. And then it's 10 hour, it's a 10 hour direct flight from Japan to New Zealand. So it makes all the sense. I don't know why you wouldn't do that. <laughs> it makes yeah, sense to me. <laughs> Definitely a perfect trip in the sense that like I absolutely love Japan, everything about Japan. So we had a fantastic time there and then we boarded the plane and then went to New Zealand and explored a completely crazy, beautiful place as well. So yeah. If you have any tips on those favorite places. So let's first start with Japan. What's your, what's a few Anastasia Japan tips since you've traveled there so much? Uh, for anyone who's never been there, I've never been there. So give me some tips, girl. I know. I remember we had this um, chat about Japanese toilets, but I'll, I'll might save it later. <laughs> I mean, Japanese toilets. toilets are amazing. Just got to say that, okay? Not only <laughs> that, but like you'll have a warm, a warm, warm seat. seat. And then you'll have like a button to press so that the music plays so that you're not distracted by the sounds and the sounds don't distract you. And anyway, it's just, it's a different universe. Like, and they'll have a Wait. bidet, which is installed I in a toilet. I totally forgot about the sounds. So guys, the toilets in Japan are lovely, like bidets on steroids. And they have like, you could, lit first of all, warm seats second of all you could press a little tune so you don't hear anybody going doing their business and nobody hears you and that's nobody i mean nobody hears you i think it's more like given the way japanese people are i think it's more about like it helps you to be a bit more relaxed about your <laughs> now do they play zen music like what kind of music like do you play like billy joel <laughs> or do you play like zen like garden music, what's going on? <laughs> like... right, so they're not that sophisticated, although I'm, <laughs> I honestly wouldn't be surprised if like they've probably already reached that point. I just haven't haven't seen them yet. But the the ones that I had, they, usually they'll either have a sound which is kind of like resembles the flush sound, but like it kind of is <sighs> ongoing. So it's just like the water kind of floating oh. type sound. Sometimes it's bird chirping or like some kind of like chirping or like whatever. So yeah. <laughs> something that just distracts you from the you know reality of where you are and helps you to be in a different mind space for doing the things that you need to do um but I'm, yeah i'm oh definitely God. gonna try to find a clip of that and play it <laughs> so i think i don't think i have this but i do have a video so in in the narita airport in tokyo it's the international airport although they both are international, but still. Um, at the Narita airport, there's a Toto toilet gallery. Yes. So it, the Toto is the brand that does those crazy toilets. Um, but basically- My it's friend a, has a Toto. I went to yeah. his house and I kept going to the bathroom. Yeah, exactly. Because you just want to spend your time in the bathroom once you discover the toilet. But basically, um, the, the gallery is like a- Toto Toilet Museum and they have like various 
like very like they, they have various rooms with different styles of their toilets some of them are like older some of them are new more advanced and stuff and so you can just kind of like go and check it out and i'm not just look at it but actually use it um which is nice i mean best museum out there um so yeah i highly recommend that and i think i have a video i don't have the video from the inside but i do have the video of like kind of like the gallery <laughs> the entrance <laughs> somebody I entering the video. door of perception uh yeah it's yeah fun <laughs> so what else but, do you have any other tips of japan other than yeah. your amazing toilets <laughs> yeah <laughs> i digress <laughs> i apologize um no i love that <laughs> tips for japan i mean it really depends on what kind of trip tri like trip you do if it's the first time ever you go to japan and if you only have like one or two weeks then i would recommend not cramming everywhere and everything and everywhere as well uh, into that trip, but sort of like be more specific about exactly the things that you want to see and maybe even just like stay in Tokyo and like maybe exploring like the areas that are close by, you know, taking a day trip to Kamakura, which is like on the coast, which is a beautiful coastal town uh, or like going to Yokohama. Anyway, so kind of like stay focused and sort of explore that. So, yeah, so if you're more into um, like exploring the cultural and traditional aspects of Japan, and, um, then a good idea is to get yourself a JR pass is what they call them. It's basically like a railroad pass, which will allow you access to almost all of the rail and I think buses and like transport system, except for like the two super fast bullet trains. But it's okay, you still get to ride one of the fastest bullet trains, even if you don't get to ride those two. The Tokyo to Kyoto route um, takes about two hours by bullet train and they're really speedy. they like they go pretty fast. When you when it when it launched, like when it starts moving, it feels like you're taking off because it like presses you back into the seat and it starts like, Anyway, so um, it's a great experience though as well because you get to see a lot and then like local trains in Japan are fantastic as well. So just like any route you choose pretty much is going to take you somewhere picturesque and fabulous. Eat everything in Japan because it's delicious and... Any favorite restaurants? Okay, so well last time we discovered the sushi place in Tokyo um, in Omotesandō area. So it's kind of like... An, I don't know, Tokyo doesn't really have a city center, but it's like a, what you'd call like a central downtown part. It was pretty expensive, but uh, it's an absolutely worth it experience because it's the kind of experience where you're like, you want to eat your tongue. It's so good. It's just like everything just melts in your mouth. And the place is called Kidaguchi. It's a traditional Japanese uh, kind of sushi um, place. So it, it's nothing fancy inside, but very cute. And the, the food is fancy. The food, it's not about fancy. It's just about like how they make it and what they make it. So the right. the guy, he's the, he's like the second chef. He's not the, the main chef. The, so there's, like, there's a structure, you know, like the owner of the place and he's like the second chef. So he spent eight years uh, like, working as a chef to get there because like becoming wow. a sushi chef takes a very long period of time and a lot of tenacity and dedication. So he spent a reasonable amount of time in Canada in his like childhood or whatever teens. So he spoke um, English as well. So I kind of like, it was a great opportunity to practice both like Japanese, but also like be able to ask questions when I couldn't understand at all what he was, what was going on and like what kind of fish we were eating and stuff. It's the little details, it's the flavors, it's the way he prepares things, things that you like never think would go together and 
and then he just serves it to you and you're like oh i'll give it a try and then like you know he's like oh try this and and you eat it and it's amazing and it's like do you know what this was and it's like no idea but it was delicious i was like hey well it's tentacles anyway so we get the idea right it's like it's just the craziest combinations of things and it was absolutely delicious and i think i still like can kind of feel the taste in my mouth so we're definitely going back again i recommend that so that people know when they go to this place it's a little expensive what is the average price so people can prepare themselves they have a sign on the door because clearly um a lot of people run into that um it's about 200 dollars per person uh per like u.s dollars uh yeah u.s dollars for the night but so it is it sounds it's on the pricier side for sure but it's absolutely worth it it's like I feel like not all the Michelin star experience can compare to this sometimes. So it's interesting. And again, they're upfront about it. You'll see a massive sign on the door warning you about this. So you'll know it. So if you don't think you can spend this, it's okay. There are a lot of other, don't worry about it because there are a lot of great places in Tokyo as well, where you can have some fantastic sushi too. It's just not going to be that experience, but. Right. So it's like, it's a whole experience. It's, it's for the whole night. Like, are you there? $200 $200 for the entire night. How mm-hmm. many, like, is it like a, guys, I've never, I don't understand the whole like mm-hmm. Japanese structure for sushi. Is it like a whole thing mm-hmm. where they're serving you different things? Like, is it uh, the American style, which is you order a roll <laughs> and then that's it? Or it's like, what, are, what do you mean? First of all, um, Japanese sushi and American sushi are really different things. Yeah, I bet. That's why I'm like, people are going to listen to this and be like, it's sushi. What do you mean? So I want to hear the difference. Yes. All of Philadelphia and California and the rolls with avocado and stuff. That's not no, the not what Japanese person thinks when you say sushi. So um it's, it's more about raw fish and like um rice with like raw fish and that kind of stuff. So um it really depends. Like if you go to a normal um standard sushi place, you usually you can either order like just different types of nigiri. If I'm not yes. mistaken, the nigiri are the ones that are just rice with like um, a raw fish on top um, uh, but you can also order a set and they'll bring, bring you a little set like it's a combination of different things the best thing to do is to ask for a omakase which is basically a chef's choice um, and that's actually a really great thing to do in Japan because they usually the chef goes like oh amazing I'm gonna get my best fish out there so like, they'll prepare, prepare a really nice plate for you but the kiraguchi experience was different because it was really truly an experience in the sense that like our chef he took us through that journey he gives you like a little start like he asked us if we had any allergies or if there's something some kind of fish that we don't eat or like would like not to eat or would love to try it's almost like having a i don't know um alcohol taste wine tasting whatever where like we start with a relatively like light type of fish and i'm really bad at fish so i'm not, not gonna go and even name names right now because i'm just gonna get it all wrong but uh, he starts with a really light stuff and then it gets more and more complex in terms of flavors and things wow. so it like it is a journey and then i did it takes like i think it took us about two hours to just go for like that main part and then you can still like you know add little parts here and there and then you can always come back and he he was also talking about about every single thing that he was serving and like what kind of fish it is and how you like how, how do you cook it and what is it if it's culturally important in any way in Japan like why is it important and that kind of stuff so it was, wow. it was, it was like a learning experience and the fast, like eating ex- it's everything wow that's amazing I want to go yeah <laughs> like my mouth is watering right now I'm like ah oh, sushi like really good sushi oh, I've got to go um so 
Thank you for the Japan advice. What about New Zealand? New Zealand. Oh my God. Okay. So, um, definitely flat white. I mean, they're famous for their flat white. I, in fact, I think New Zealand claims that they invented flat, flat white, or they have like a little bit of a uh, fight going on with Australia in regards to who. What is flat white? Flat white, flat white is a, it's a type of coffee. It's basically, you probably, oh, if you drink, yes. yeah, if you drink latte, you probably wouldn't know the difference because it's a quite similar type of preparation. It's just the proportions of milk and coffee and sometimes the way they make it. Um, but um, usually it's a bit stronger than latte, but it's not like cappuccino. It'll have like a softer foam. Anyways, for, for a coffee gig, you're like, you'll know what a flat white is. In terms of experiences, again, it's just um, driving around, exploring. Lake Taupo, for instance, it's an old cauldron filled with water. It's a beautiful lake, gorgeous. One of the places that we went to is called Wayo Tapo. Um, it's natural gazers, like hot pools, baths, all that kind of stuff. So it's really, really cool. Um, the way they described it is um, colorful bubbling water heated by volcanoes. And it literally is what it is. Um, it smells of sulfur. It's terrible, but but apart from that, it's absolutely gorgeous. And actually, I just remembered um, another awesome place. But again, I guess for, if you live in America, it's probably not as interesting to you, but they have a nice redwood um, forest there as well oh. which is what we're visiting but you guys have it in california so the first thing that struck me when we went to new zealand was that the flora is completely different um they're like very different plants and plant life in general you'd have really, really cute swirly things and it's just i don't i don't know it's, everything is just like you're on the same planet but it looks different what propelled you to start traveling? Was there a big change in your life? Because I met you and you were solo traveling. So yeah. Uh, yeah. that was pretty amazing. But what what did younger Anastasia want to do with her life <laughs> that propelled her to go, you know what, I'm going to go travel the world? Because some people are just content with just being in their own bubble, in their own town. They yeah. don't leave. And that's fine too. But uh, yeah. what what made you kind of want to step out into the world? The first like proper trip abroad that I remember well uh, was in 2005, I think. My parents sent me to France, to the south of France to uh, for three weeks to prepare for my university entrance exams because I was thinking of becoming a French language translator. Um, never happened, what? but I, I, did, I did graduate university with my French language degree, but... Uh, it's a different podcast, different story. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, um, I mean, it sounds fancy. It was nothing fancy. I was living with a host family and just going to school every day for three weeks. But I think that was kind of the first ever experience. First of all, it was the first ever experience for me living abroad by myself and living in a country that is not Russia um and like seeing how things are done and how things can be different and how people can be happier and just like things that made more sense to me than they did back home so that was kind of i guess the first eye opener and that's where it got addictive because i was suddenly like oh you know there's this but i want to know what's happening there and so but yeah so i think my early travel was more like with kid camps and like educational stuff and whatever and then my first like trips which were like 
purposeful trips where where the trips were followed 30 seconds to mars the band uh they yeah I'm, I'm one of those people who travels for music a lot so um they would play shows in germany or france actually france was one of the first trips um my friends were going and i was just about i was just about turning 18 or i think it was 17 there anyway I needed to go and ask my parents to give me permission to go there. And I had the whole speech prepared as to why it was important for me and why I had to go and why they had to let me go. And I was just like shaking and I was like, <laughs> and so I go to my parents and tell my mom, like, mom, I really need to go to Paris for the 30 seconds to Mars gig. And then she goes like, yeah, okay. And, <laughs> and I'm like, we're like, yes. <laughs> Well, no, I was like, wait, what do you mean? Okay, like I, I was prepared to like stand for myself and, you know, explain why I need to do this. And you never even questioned my life choices and decisions. Um, but no, they supported me early on with that. So that was great. So that's, that's when cool. I started like traveling. And I think that's when travel like kind of became an essential part of my life because the more you're out there, the more you make friends, the more you explore new areas. Yeah, I felt restless by staying put for a long time. For a long period of time, I needed to go somewhere. You're a journalist. So talk about your life as a journalist and what were some of the challenges you faced as a journalist. You obviously have traveled for journalism. So what what is that journey? What does that look like? It's more like I used to be a journalist. I can't say that I'm doing so much journalistic work right now. I still work in the media, but it's more like of a kind of almost a management type of role. I did some travel for journalism for sure um like especially with my work that I did with Reuters for instance but I don't know none of that was ever really anything glamorous you know like it's just covering stories like um that's the thing I think that people probably think it's glamorous but they don't really understand so I think that that journey as a journalist like what does it look like for us outsiders that go wow traveling for journalism that's so cool like what is that like no, I mean, I'm also, it depends on what kind of journalism you work in. But um, so I used to work at a news agency. And I mean, and even with my current um, job, like it's never it's never a glamorous kind of travel because um, you're either traveling to somebody's court hearings or to some big protests or to some, I don't know, um, big um, accident areas or whatever. So it's never it's never something to be really happy about. Um, so. It was actually quite interesting. I was just recently listening to um, Guy Raz, who has the How I Built This podcast, who I absolutely love. I mean, it's if great podcast, one of my favorite podcasts in the world. And there was a special episode where he was interviewed by his friend for that podcast, which was really cool. Which we we'll, should do that for you as well. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, and he so he's a kind of a. I mean, what he's doing now is technically maybe a journalism as well, but I think right now it's more like a content creator-ish type of thing. But he was definitely a, like a journalist in a very classical sense of that back in the day. And that, what he said really stuck with me. He was saying that a lot of people go into journalism thinking that they can change the world or thinking that they can improve things and like make something better. And the more you work in the industry, the more you realize that it's not really the case. So I think one of the biggest challenges is like to over overcoming this rose-tinted glasses outlook that you get when you start out as a journalist or in the journalism world, thinking that the news that you cover, the content that you create, you know, the stories that you write or like the video that you edit or whatever has such a huge impact and it can change the world and that kind of stuff. 
I, again, from my personal experience, just like from the guy Ras's experience, I don't think that's the case. It's you're, you might be able to help someone. You might be able to spread awareness to a certain level, but I think the impact is pretty limited. So, but at the same time, I also don't want to diminish the work, uh, diminish the work of the journalists because there's a lot of important stuff that journalists do and a lot of important, important stories that are being told and are being uncovered and just like the truth that's being spread out there. So if, if it's your life choice, if you believe that that's what you want to do, then just be prepared to like sort of dig deep and do a lot of dirty work um, and not always be appreciated for what you do. In fact, actually, um, speaking of other challenges, I mean, right now, again, I'm not on the side of journalism so much anymore. But uh, we have a lot of reporters that work on the ground. And the nature of my company is that we tell, we, we tend to tell the real stories of real people in those locations, those countries, where governments are not very happy with that, where authoritarian leaders do not want those stories to be told because they want people to believe something else. And so that creates a really... It, it is a it is a dangerous job because people get detained, people get prosecuted, people get harassed, and like our journalists, the people that I work with, um, sometimes end up in situations where I really wish <laughs> nobody else would ever be in. So um, it's a really it can be a really scary job too. Yeah, I I mean I love hearing what you're saying too because I think it's a job that you have to feel like you're called for it especially if you want to do investigative reporting, if you want to do investigative reporting, or if you want to do like war journalism, you know, mm -hmm. anything like yeah, that yeah. can be quite difficult. So it's, it's nice to hear a little bit of that world and what that looks like and, and how difficult it is. I know you kind of moved into journalism and music. What was that like? And how did you transition from NATO summits and <laughs> all of that, you know, to doing music? It was more like a side gig for me. I mean, music has always been a big passion for me. So I love telling stories of incredible musicians or like stories around music or how like, you know, somebody's music helped save somebody's life, whatever. Um, I really like those stories. Um, unfortunately, I think I kind of fell into this weird time and space in our history where um most like the instagrams and the facebooks with their like video formats and stuff weren't there yet so the only way to tell the story was pretty much to just do like a text story with maybe some photography and whatnot five six years ago when i was pitching stories to like various publications and stuff pretty much no one ever would pay me to do this so all the stuff that i ever did was almost it's like free work. It's your passion. Yeah, it's my passion. I loved it and I wanted to share that, but I would almost never get paid for it, which is a shame because it's it's work. I mean, you do, it's not like you're just having a fun time talking to this musician, but you know, like preparing your questions in advance, getting to know the person before um, you even get to talk to them. And not only that, but like sometimes the information on like younger or like more up and coming artists is not available. So you have to do either more digging or you have to like figure find it out from somewhere before you go into that interview, or you have to really phrase your questions in a way that will make that person open up uh, and talk about themselves. 
obviously the interview doesn't write itself. So you have to do all the transcri transcribing and like putting this together and like finding the right words, finding the right uh, way to like present the person. So, um, and making the headline sound sexy so that people just actually want to read that oh and God. like check out their music and stuff. So, um, so yes, yeah, so there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of work, but um, like, it's almost never paid. I think it's a bit better these days because I think a lot more outlets that they are kind of like, they're hungry for the content, content, but they're also aware of the fact that like content doesn't come free, you know, like if somebody creates something right. for free for you and that something will have to give in at some point, it's either the quality or they won't be able to do it long-term or it's just like, right. you have to also ask yourself like, why are they doing it for free? So that was, I, that was, if, you could probably put that into the challenge box as well, but also like it's one of those things that I truly found sad. But apart from that, like, yes, I really, um, I got to write stories about some of the absolute favorite musicians and artists that I love, um, the interviewing Aurora, uh, the Norwegian singer, it was one of my favorite things to do, writing about Bastille when they played um, an intimate show in London was really great. Um, so yeah, I'm going to Berlin to um, be in the same room as Daniel Barenboim, a famous conductor. Every every single one of those stories was definitely worth it, um, and I loved covering them. And so for those stories, I would often travel, <laughs> but most of the time it would be out of my pocket kind of travel. I'd be like, oh, they're launching a new album, and... I have access to launch. I'm going to go, you know, I got to go. And yeah, I want to write about them. I want to tell the world about them. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. honestly, I'm going to put it out there. If anybody wants to pay Anastasia to go and cover this stuff there, I know there is. And maybe it was just timing and maybe it's just, you know, everything comes in perfect timing. But there are definitely, you know, ways to do that. I'm, it's going to come. You know, because I feel like that's something that you're really passionate about and you're good at it. And, um, you know, it's for me, I've done a lot of free stuff because I'm just passionate about it. And then the cards fall where they fall. And a lot of times, you know, eventually I'll get that sponsor or I'll get like, you know, I'll, like I, I was I remember back in the day I was just hiking and, and doing all this stuff and someone caught on and they contacted me and said, hey, can we sponsor you to climb Mount Whitney? And those just came out of just because of out of out of passion, because I was just doing it out of my pocket, out of my own, you know, need to climb mountains. But then people notice. So I feel like over time, you'll it'll it'll come and I'm putting it out there. And let me tell you, I've said this to other people, other guests where I'm like, I say something, stuff becomes real. <laughs> like, not even joking. Like, I'm we are powerful. Like our minds are powerful. So sure. Yes. <laughs> what tips do you have for someone who's not necessarily just interviewing a musician or an artist, but someone that they admire and they're a journalist? How do you do that? Like, what are some like quick tips that you can say, like, you know, how to make somebody open up or how to pitch or something? Mm. Um, well, I mean, the interview tips which is which are not specifically for journalists but for, i think for anyone really um i mean it's gen general curiosity is the thing that will open doors for you because if you go into the interview um with a set of questions and then you start the conversation 
and the person drops something really interesting in their sentence, but you completely and entirely ignore that and just kind of like continue with your question list, you're not going to get a good interview. You have to really listen, you have to be mindful and you have to be curious and, oh, they said something. Oh, could you like expand on that? Or like, did you really do that? Can you explain this to me? Like, it has to be a, a like a, a live kind of conversation. I think that's when you get the best results, so to speak. That's how you get the best conversations, you know, like by asking questions, by genuinely wanting to listen to what people have to say and by following up and yeah. And I mean, what is an interview? It's just a great conversation with someone I don't know in terms of pitching and like just in general I think in terms of doing those kind of things if you're if you're really passionate about like writing or telling stories and that kind of stuff it's the kind of thing that I, mean, I think storytelling in general is very en vogue these days and everybody talks about it a lot brands talk about storytelling bloggers do storytelling media does story everybody tells a story um, but at the same time I mean there's never enough good but like real story or properly told story and so um it's just it's just it might just be a lot of hard work in the beginning before you get to the point where you feel comfortable about where you are and what you're doing and how you're getting paid and all that kind of stuff it might just you might just end up like pitching your stories to like hundreds of outlets and never hearing back from them and that's okay i mean it's it's not okay because it's shitty and it feels bad, but but it's okay. What is the process of pitching? Let's say there's like a young journalist who's listening to this. Like, what would you say to them? Like, how do they go about that? They have a, I really want to interview this person. How do I pitch this to this outlet? You know, they've never yeah, done it before. Mm -hmm. uh, well, first of all, I think you have to figure out who, like, where do you see that interview being published? Like, where do you see a perfect space for that? Because just going blind and pitching it to everyone and being like, I'm waiting for someone to pick up. I don't think it's the right approach. I think the better approach is to be like, I really like this magazine and I really like this person or like this musician or artist or whatever. And I think they're, they, I can tell a perfect story for this magazine about them and they would be a perfect fit. And that's kind of like step one, figure out, figure out what your target audience is, right? So figure out what that outlet is that's gonna be perfect for publishing that story. And then once that's out of the way, um, then send them a pitch, which is customized and like very kind of- Made for their magazine made or made for them. Around. Yeah, made for them so that they know that like, you know what they're doing and that what you're offering has been, that offer has been made specifically for them and not just like one of those generic ones, which means a lot more work, but also, I mean, those things usually tend to pay back. Well, because it's genuine work, work, right? Genuine. And um, again, I think it's, it, it really helps when people see that you've done your homework, so. What were some of the most fulfilling moments or things that you've experienced as a journalist either in music or just journalism in general it's funny because I'm almost going to contradict myself a little bit here but um seeing my stories reaching somewhere like doing this like interview with the pussy riot girls and then flying to London a few hours later and seeing those that footage playing on the BBC and knowing it's it's my footage I did those interviews I spoke to them and knowing that like all the other people who are right now at the airport watching that BBC screen and pretty much anyone who's watching the BBC, they hear them, they hear what they have to say, so the impact. Um, 
is kind of there or like knowing that you wrote about this artist and then again Reuters published about it and then a couple of days later they get like I don't know a whole bunch of new followers and like maybe like someone writing to them and asking them if they want to play somewhere because they just read that story and it really resonated with them and they thought ooh I like I wish I knew that band before but now that I know them I definitely want to reach out to them so um kind of like getting those stories out there for the world and just watching how they build a life of their own and like the connections that they create. Um, I think that's the most fascinating thing to me about journalism. It's the butterfly effect. You kind do this of, like yeah. one thing and then all of a sudden it kind of propels other things. Emotion, yeah. So that's kind of cool to have that kind of impact on like someone's career as a musician or you know someone's everyday life and you're watching them at a train station like you said seeing like your news report how amazing does that feel I know I felt that as like a photographer and a content producer when I see my stuff on you know uh, Times Square, Square right when I saw that I was like wow millions of people are seeing my photograph and seeing my work like that's really cool and it there's something about it that's just like special you know, like, you know, you worked your butt off to get there and all of the things that you had to do to, you know, make that happen. The years of hard work. Definitely. <laughs> cool. Tell me your most meaningful person that you've ever met when you've traveled. Meaningful person. Yeah. Like someone that really, it could be somebody that you interviewed or somebody on the side of the road that you just remember and uh, made an impact in your life. Somebody that you've mm. encountered during your travels, either for work or for pleasure? Well, it must be you. Me? <laughs> yes. What? <laughs> Definitely one of the most meaningful people in my life. She was my Airbnb host, and then suddenly she's like my long lost soulmate. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding, well, I mean, seriously, that trip, um, that trip and meeting you and like spending that whole month well, it was a bit less than a month, but still like together doing fun stuff and just like, um, it was kind of an interesting transition in point in my life and in your life as well. So I think that was, um, yeah, one of those encounters that I hold dear and special. Oh, <laughs> that means a lot. <laughs> what about like someone that you interviewed that we were just like, wow, that was like one of my most favorite interviews or like that was my most mm -hmm. meaningful interview that changed my perspective about something or uh, somewhere along those lines. Cause you've interviewed a lot of people. It was um, world athletics or like, yeah, I think it's a world athletic championship that was taking place in Moscow a few years ago. And we were invited to go to the American embassy to meet the american athletes and to hear them share their stories and experience and all that i think maybe there was probably maybe something with doping going on as well at that moment as it always is with russia but anyway so um that's where i met an interview that was a reuters interview um an american um 100 meter runner i guess like a short distance runner uh, nick simmons ah. so that was a very interesting uh, encounter and conversation. The stereotype that you have of a sports person in your head is usually they're like really good at their sports, but maybe you're not the smartest, um, you know, tools in the box. So, so I kind of went in with in there, just kind of 
having the simplest questions prepared and whatever, just wanted to like, so how did you feel the victory or whatever? Tell me about it. But he actually turned out to be like one of the smartest people I met in not just sports, but like in general. Um, so we had a great conversation. He studies biology. So he was actually wow. really into like those kind of topics. He dedicated his silver medal to his um, gay and lesbian friends back in the US at that point. I think because Russia was clamping down on the gay rights a lot. So he kind of like this, he was aware of the political situation of the country that he was in. Definitely don't treat sports people anymore. It's like, oh, you're, you're an athlete, <laughs> whatever. No, I think athletes can be just the smartest, not smarter than a lot of us. That's so interesting. Wow, that's pretty cool. What is a piece of advice could you give to a younger Anastasia? Right. Um, I think not only just to, to myself, really, to anybody, um, the and I don't mean to sound like a Nike advert, but really just do it. <laughs> uh, because I, I think that that's, that's one of the things, like when you have any doubts or when you like wondering or trying to decide, or should I, should I not, is it the right time or whatever, just do it. The one thing that you're never going to regret is that you've done something and it worked out a certain way. But the things we always end up regretting is that when we didn't do something like, oh, I wish, you know, I wish I would have like traveled here or that. Especially I think now with the coronavirus and stuff, it's like been a good wake up call for me as well uh, for any single one of those like trips and things where I was like, oh, maybe, you know, like now is not the right time. Maybe I'll do it a bit later and stuff. Um, no, just like do it. <laughs> if just there's nothing that stops you, if you don't have any physical uh limitations barriers or any like whatever financial or okay, obviously there are things in life that can prevent you from doing something at this particular moment in life but if there's nothing visible that stops you from doing this just do it you're not going to regret it what is the one interesting item that you take with you when you travel not the obvious or something that you purchase do you have anything that you go and get every time so my headphones would be the item um, because I just love, like I can't travel without music. I just need to have it in my ears. In terms of bio, okay, okay. There's a, one silly thing. So my parents love collecting magnets. That's what I do. <laughs> you collect them or you bring them? Yes. No, I collect them. My whole fridge is covered with all the places that I've got. Yeah, I remember. Yes, my parents love collecting magnets too um so whenever i go i usually bring them oh i love that okay so last questions last question where can we find you well the planet earth uh <laughs> <laughs> yes i i mean if you go to mars that's cool too <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you can find me on social media, obviously, like everyone these days. Um, Instagram is probably the best place for all my travel adventures. I am Anastasia Lova. So that's where you can find me and follow me. And whenever I'm traveling, I always post a couple of pictures. And I usually like to share a little story or something about something that I've learned locally as well, um, or some thoughts or quotes or whatever. So, um, yeah. I love it. Yes. Well, Anastasia, I love you with all my damn heart. Thank you so much for joining me on the Roaming the Earth podcast, stories and adventures of people who are jet setters, nomads, and explorers. This is Drea Castro signing off. 
Join us again next time. Stay wild. If you're interested in hearing more stories from around the globe, don't forget to subscribe, share it to your friends, and follow me on Instagram on I'm Roaming the 